Red Hennig. Okay, Revelation 6. Revelation 6. We've been going through Revelation. We'll probably be here through Christmas, I would say, at least. Here's our key idea today. It's on the board behind me, and then we'll dive into the details. Either you will yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, or you will face the wrath of God. That's not a comfortable decision for our world, but it's absolute reality. Now, let's go back just a bit and put this in context. Remember, Revelation 1 is John's vision of the exalted Christ. That's the past. Revelation 2 and 3 are Jesus' seven letters to seven churches. His seven churches, he tells them what he wants them to do. He uh, gives them laudatory uh, accolades for the things they're doing well and what they need to change. Revelation 4 and 5, we have scenes from heaven. We've just spent the last two Sundays in Revelation 4 and 5. God is seated on the throne. God is completely in control. The Lamb is uh, on the throne with God and, and being worshipped. And now we're moving into Revelation 6. So we're going through a major shift in focus. We're now moving into the period of time called the Great Tribulation. We're going to spend several weeks here, actually a month or two. In the Old Testament, the Great Tribulation is most often called the Day of Jehovah or the Day of the Lord. So anytime you get into the Old Testament and you see the Day of the Lord or the Day of Jehovah, they're talking about the Great Tribulation. You may see that day, quote, show up in the Old Testament. That can refer to the millennium as well. But when you see the day of the Lord and day of Jehovah, it always means the great tribulation period as described in Revelation. In Scripture, the day of the Lord or the day of Jehovah is always viewed as a day of judgment, a day of wrath, a day of darkness, a day of divine retribution at that point in time. Daniel 9 tells us this period lasts how long? Seven years. Revelation identifies the last half of this period in many, many ways. Multiple times in Revelation, you'll see the last half of the period described as three and a half years, 42 months. These, by the way, they're all 30-day months. It's all 30-day months, just so you know. 3.5 years or 1,260 days, so you'll see that commonly referred to. Just give you an overview of how this is going to flow. Revelation 6 through 18 deals with the entire seven-year period of the Great Tribulation. Daniel or Revelation 6 through 9 and 17 deal with the first half. So the next several weeks, 6 through 9 and 17, we're going to deal with the first three and a half years of this time horizon. Chapters 10 through 14 deal with the midpoint, what happens at the three and a half year time horizon. And then chapters 15, 16, and 18 deal with the second half. So we've got a ways to go. Now I want you to remember that God only does things with purpose. God does nothing without purpose. So everything the Lord has, has purpose. And some of you are asking, or you should be asking, what is the purpose of the Great Tribulation? This is the most convulsive, catastrophic, disastrous period of time in Earth's history. What's the point? Why would God bring this to bear on the planet? There's three major purposes for the Great Tribulation. The first purpose is to make an end of wickedness and wicked ones. God will destroy evil. You must understand that this earth is a toxic place for God's holiness. God's holiness hates evil, and yet this planet is populated with people that he loves. That's a bit of a problem because the people he loves are also evil people. Therefore, the cross. If you were in the service this morning, you understood that. But the purpose, first purpose of the Great Tribulation is to make an end of wickedness and wicked people, God will destroy evil. Isaiah 13.9 is your cross-reference. Isaiah 13.9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, 
with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. This is hard language. Back to the holiness of God, you cannot forget that. So the first purpose of the, of the great tribulation is to make an end of wickedness and wicked ones. The second is the opposite end of the teeter-totter. The second purpose of the tribulation is to bring about worldwide revival. To bring about worldwide revival. God longs for everyone to be saved. He hates evil. He despises sin, and yet he loves people and he wants everyone to be saved. So we see two ends of the teeter-totter at work. Eliminate evil and bring about worldwide salvation. Your cross-reference here is Revelation 7, which we're going to be in next week, by the way. Revelation 7, verses 9 to 14. John has a vision of heaven like he does here, and it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, standing before the throne clothed in white robes. Verse 14. These are the ones who came out of the Great Tribulation. Now, just from a time perspective, the Great Tribulation occurs, the earth is already raptured, I mean, the church is already raptured. So you know my theology at this point in time. My eschatology is very much a pre-trib rapture. Now, there's competent scholars that will argue with that particular perspective, and I respect that. But I think if you view Scripture, as we said two weeks ago, from a literal hermeneutic, you'll probably wind up being persuaded that the church is raptured before the Great Tribulation. Having said that, there are millions and millions and millions of people who will come to Christ during the Great Tribulation because the gospel is preached through the whole seven-year period. God always has a witness for himself. We're going to talk about that last week, next week rather. So make an end of sin, purpose number one. Second purpose is worldwide evangelism. God wants everyone to be saved. The third purpose of the Great Tribulation is one that you probably won't put your hands on right away, but it's crucial. The third purpose of the Great Tribulation is to break the power or the stubborn will of the holy people, the nation of Israel. God is going to be their king. And he's going to be their king when they invite him to rescue them. The Great Tribulation, one of the purposes is to put Israel in a place where nationally they will invite him by tears, as we found out, to come and rescue them. Daniel 12, 6-7 is your cross-reference. How long will it be till the end of these wonders? They're talking about the tribulation period, the supernatural activities. And he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people. So three purposes. One, eliminate sin from the planet. Cleanse this place. This planet needs cleansing. Number two, bring about worldwide revival. Number three, break the stubborn will of the nation of Israel while they will invite him to come back and be their king. Now, in chapter 6, we come to a major shift we're moving from the worship of the Lamb to the work of the Lamb. Chapters 5 and chapters 4 were all about the worship of the Lamb. Remember the worship of heaven, the one on the throne, and we saw that the last couple of weeks. Now we're moving to the work of the Lamb. We now see Jesus Christ, the Lion and the Lamb, take the scroll from the one sitting on the throne, and he's going to open that. Last week we said that the scroll represents God's battle plan to repossess his planet. And we talked about how repossession is not always a neat little thing. You can't always just give somebody a court order and say, would you get out of my property and stop trashing it? Satan's not leaving the planet without force. 
So this is a battle plan that involves very, very severe catastrophic judgments to take back what is his. This planet is his by right of creation, and Satan is an interloper, and he's been squatting on God's property. Remember, we talked about that last week, and he's got to be evicted, and the place has to be purified because Satan's not a good squatter. He's a mess. He leaves toxic waste behind. That's called sin. So the first four seals is what we're going to get through as a group here. Actually, I'm going to finish the chapter, Lord willing, but the first four seals are in one group. They're considered one set of judgments, and they're called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen, you've probably already heard that. That's not a backfield for Notre Dame. That's the God's judgment on the planet. Anytime you see horses in Scripture, we're always talking about power, force, majesty, victory, etc. So just keep that in mind. Chapter 6, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, the Lamb, of course, being Jesus Christ, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come. So John is observing the worship of heaven, and the Lamb now has taken the scroll and is beginning to open it. And that opening that scroll is the beginning of God's judgment on planet Earth and, this, and the the living creature, the cherubim, says, come. He's not talking to John. The cherubim doesn't say to John, in your Bibles, it may say, come and see, scratch and see. That's not in the original Greek. It's not to John. John is present on site. John doesn't need to come and see. He's there. The cherubim is commanding the first horseman to come. That means calling forth judgment. So that's what's being said there at that point in time. And these four horsemen have already been predicted, prophesied by Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. If you want to cross-reference to Revelation 6, get your pen out. Matthew 24, Luke 13, I mean Mark 13, Luke 21. You want cross-references. The Olivet Discourse that Jesus went through with his disciples before he ascended, before the cross, that very week, covers everything in Revelation 6. Matthew 24, Mark 13... And Luke 21, Matthew 24, 8, Jesus said that this judgment is going to be the beginning of birth pangs. It's going to occur like birth pangs. Labor pains, I'm told on good authority by people who've been there, at first are reasonably infrequent, right? And then they increase in both frequency and intensity. Ladies, is that, would that be about right? And we males are clueless with respect to this, right? Absolutely clueless. We want to be clueless, guys. We really want to be clueless. So here's the principle. God's kingdom on earth is being born. That's Jesus' point when he says birth bangs. And God's judgments are its labor pains. So God's going to bring his kingdom to birth, the kingdom of heaven, the messianic kingdom, and he's going to bring it to bear, or bear this kingdom, if you will, but the judgments on the planet to cleanse it from sin and bring about worldwide revival, that's the labor pains. And Jesus said they're like birth pains at that point. So as the seven-year period progresses, and we're going to see this over the next several months, and the second coming of Jesus becomes closer, you're going to notice the catastrophes on planet Earth get more frequent and they get more intense. You're going to see today that one of the judgments is 25% of the planet's population is destroyed. Well, when we get to the trumpet judgments, it's a third. And when you get to the seal judgments, it's even greater. So the, the judgments, as we go through the process, get more intense and they get more frequent. When you get to the seven bowl judgments, I mean, it's just the place literally falls apart at the seams at that point. So it's like birth. The waves of pain become faster. 
and increasingly unbearable. So the first seal is represented by a rider on a white horse, verse 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So John is now looking from the perspective of heaven, and he's focused back on earth. This, this vision is what's happening on earth at this point in time. Very good. There you go. The rider on this white horse does not represent Jesus Christ because Jesus the Lamb is in heaven breaking the seals. He's sending the judgment forth. Jesus' weapon in Revelation is always a sword. What's this guy's weapon? A bow. Interestingly enough, both Jesus and this character ride on white horses. And white horses always represent victories. Victory. In Roman times, when you had a general on a white horse, that was always post-victory. Post-battle, and they would take this ticker tape parade uh, down Main Street, so to speak. So this, this individual looks like a Messiah, but he's not the Messiah. This guy is a counterfeit Messiah, a false Messiah. He's actually the Antichrist. And we're going to get a lot into this character in the next few weeks. So this white horse represents conquest and victory. The rider has a bow. What's missing? Doesn't say anything about arrows. So it says this person conquers without shooting, without bloodshed. He conquers by means of peace. If there's anything on the planet today that is valued by most people, it's peace. Because there is no peace around the planet. You don't have to look very far and all you see is warfare and bloodshed and crises. And all you have to do is look at the television and look at the refugee situation in Europe. And you're staggered at the number of people that are fleeing the bloodshed. I mean, refugees from violence at that point. So anybody who can produce planet Earth peace is going to be elevated to a position of tremendous power. That's this person. That's the Antichrist. And it says a crown was given to him. Notice that it was given to him. It doesn't say he seized it. It doesn't say he took it by force. It said it was given. The people are going to elect and choose and give this character great, great authority because he's able to produce peace without bloodshed. Now, the ability to conquer came from where? Ultimately, where does this character get his authority from? From God. It says, was given. Throughout Revelation, you will see that term was given or was granted 16 times. It was granted to so-and-so to take peace from the earth. It was given to so-and-so to slay the saints. It was granted so-and-so to, to, to uh, uh, kill a fourth part of the earth. Anytime it says granted or given, who's doing the giving or the granting? God is. There's nothing in this book that is not completely under the absolute minute authority of Almighty God. There is nothing on the planet that takes place outside the authority and the permission of Almighty God. Don't buy the notion that God is trying to figure this out. This is all pre-planned from time and past. Our eternal God is sovereign over everything. There is nothing in Revelation or anywhere else that does not come about by the permission and plan of God. Now, God is not the author of evil. God never authors evil. But he uses even the evil plans of men and demons to accomplish his purposes. Because evil will never thwart the plan of God. You need to understand that no matter how bad the planet is, and this planet is just starting birth bangs, no matter how bad it gets out there, nothing takes God by surprise. And God never says, oops, I didn't see that one coming. No, he's, God uses even the evil of humanity to accomplish his divine purposes. Every creature, including Satan, ultimately will serve God's purpose. 
either willingly or unwillingly, period. Now, we know this peace is deceptive. We know this peace is temporary. It won't last because Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, I'm going to cross-reference that verse 4, Matthew 24. See to it that no one misleads you. That means don't believe everything you read in the paper, you see on the internet, or you hear a politician speak. See that no one misleads you. Verse 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many for false Christs and false prophets will arise. By the way, they don't say I'm a false prophet. They say I am a politician who will take care of you. I'm not critiquing politicians. I'm saying people in power by definition will make you promises that they're not going to be able to keep, obviously. And they will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. You know what that means? You and I can be fooled. You and I can be deceived, amen? Your solution is the Word of God and the Spirit of God opening your mind so you understand what's really going on. And Jesus said, look, I've told you in advance. I've told you in advance. I wrote it down. Don't be surprised. I wrote it down. I gave you a warning at that point in time. This is not a lasting peace. So we have a white horse. Now we have verse 3. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to do what? Not to bring peace to the planet, but to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Now the second horse is red, and the rider means you take peace. You take peace from the whole earth. Now if peace is gone from the whole earth, what do you have? War. War. What kind of war? Global conflict, global war. Red is always the color of blood, bloodshed, violence, and war in Scripture. So the second rider is worldwide war. Jesus told you, and once again, the Olivet Discourse, don't be surprised, Matthew 24, 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened, for all these things must take place, but this is not the at the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Folks, if you read the Olivet Discourse in all three Gospels, Jesus told you well in advance this is going to happen. So he says, don't be surprised and don't be frightened. The world is going to be terrified. You should not be frightened because this planet is not your home. This deceptive peace obviously does not last. We're going to find out in the next three or four weeks. Antichrist shows his true colors soon enough. Global warfare ensues. It's not just nation on nation. It's mano a mano. It says individuals will murder each other. Right? It's given to people to slay each other. You know what that means? Crime rate's going through the roof. Not just national warfare. It means your neighborhood, there's a vast amount of conflict, and a lot of it's lethal, because he said they're going to slay each other. It means they're going to kill each other. Crime will skyrocket. It says that this person, the Antichrist, is given a great sword. In the Greek, that's machira megala. Machira, machira is, a, is a short sword about 18 to 22 inches long. It was the primary battle sword for the Roman army, and it was also the primary weapon used in assassination. You could disembowel somebody with a 22-inch sword. You can go all the way to the spinal column. I mean, you'd take them out. So a great sword means much warfare, much warfare. If you think we have conflict today, this is a whole nother level of conflict. Everyone's angry and everybody's fighting about it. When you look at contemporary weaponry today and you look at much warfare, what would you conclude? A holocaust. I mean, there's going to be an enormous amount of death occurring because 
God, the Holy Spirit, is the restrainer we'll talk about later. Has been un He's taken away, if you will, and there's nobody restraining evil at this point in time. Verse 5. First seal, white horse, peace, deceptive peace. Second seal, red horse, warfare. Now, you're going to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Some of these things are going to be very logical from here on out. Verse 5. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a... Black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, verse 6, and I heard as it were a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barter for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Now black is the color of what? Generally mourning and generally death, right black? In this context, death means, or black means death by famine. Death by famine. One of the consequences of war is famine, always has been. Crops don't get planted, existing food supplies get destroyed or commandeered, and rationing is the results. Jesus prophesied that. He told you, Matthew 24, 7. Famine is going to be one of the consequences of this time period, and we know that because the black horse rider has what in their hands? A pair of scales. This is a balance beam, and what do you do with scales in this case? You weigh out Food. When you're buying food by the pound, it's generally pretty expensive stuff. So it says there's a vast amount of rationing during this period of time. You're going to have food lines, you're going to have food scarcity, and food is going to be very, very expensive. Now, John says something very interesting. I said, I heard a voice in the center of the four living creatures. What's in the center of the four living creatures? What do they surround? The throne. So the one on the throne is now talking. This is God himself, and he says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, do not harm the oil and wine. A quart, by the way, is a Greek measure called the choinix. What, the, what they mean by a quart here was the amount of wheat that a Persian soldier would consume in one day. It was, it was a food ration, if you will, for a soldier for one day. And a denarius is what? Those of you who know what a denarius is. What's a denarius? One day's wages. So it says food's going to be so scarce that you are going to have to work one day, all day, just to buy enough wheat for yourself. What happens to your family? There's no food for them, right? We're talking about enough food just for you and you have to work all day just to feed yourself at that point in time. Now normally you could buy 16 to 20 quarts of wheat with one denarius. 16 to 20. Now you can buy one. It tells you food scarcity is going to be on a vast scale because farmers don't plant when everybody's killing everybody, right? I mean, the fields just don't get planted or harvested at that point. But it says you could buy three quarts of barley. Now, barley was considered by, the, by and large animal food. Much lower nutritional quality, much coarser, much less attractive to eat. But you could buy three quarts of animal food at that point in time if you wanted to do that. And it says oil and wine are going to become very, very precious. You used oil and wine in cooking, right? General rule of thumb. You also used them for medicinal purposes. You know, since the onset of the Industrial Revolution, the West, where we are, has really never experienced widespread famine. I guess when you talk about famine, you would say, well, maybe the potato famine in, in 1847 in Ireland was probably the last major famine where we had lots and lots of people dying in the West. Now, you go to Africa, famine's very, very common. In the industrialized West, food, fail, food 
shortages due to crop failure is not a big deal because we do what? We have trucks and trains. You ship food to where it's needed if there's so-and-so's got a bad harvest. But we really haven't known famine. Through six and a half thousand years of recorded history, famine has been a major, major threat. And when you didn't get enough rain, by the way, there was starvation and death at that point. So food is rationed everywhere because of the global warfare. Verse 7, And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, verse 8, And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. We've got four horses here, folks. We've got white, we've got red, we've got black, and we've got ashen. And he who sat on this horse had the name what? And? You don't want to get into a rodeo with death in Hades, okay? And Hades was following with him. And authority was given, underline the word was given, this comes from God. This comes from God over a fourth of the earth to kill him with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. Now, ash in here means pale. Behold a pale horse. It's the Greek word chloros. You know what chloros? We get chlorophyll, chlorine. So if it's chlorophyll, what color is this? kind of green. It's actually a pale yellow green. It's very pallid. The rider on this pale green horse had the name of death, right? So what you have here is Hades is pictured as following death around kind of like the street sweeper follows a parade. What do street sweepers pick up following a parade? The mess, right? That's what street sweepers do. Hades is pictured as kind of following along behind death, picking up the bodies, picking up the corpses at that point. So this pale greenish yellowish color is the color of decomposition. It's the color of a corpse who's decaying and decomposing. This is really, really brutal, but that's what it is. It's the mold of death. So after death, the body goes where? Into the ground, right? And it molds. Yes? That's the picture here. The spirit goes to Hades. Hades is the place where the dead are um, uh, kept until final judgment. Hades throughout Scripture is not the same as hell. It's not the lake of fire. It's a different nomenclature, but it is a place where the spirit of the deceased go awaiting final judgment. So the picture here is death is an inevitable consequence of the first three horses. Now, it says authority was given to death in Hades to do what? This staggers the imagination to take the lives of 25% of those living on planet Earth. How many people are alive today on planet Earth? About 7.169 billion. Let's just call it 7.1 billion. 25% of that's about 1.8 billion people. Okay? Give you a perspective. North America and South America combined population is about 900 million. Right at about 900 million. The entire continent of Africa is about 1.1 billion. So between Africa and North and South America, you got not quite 2 billion people. This one rider's taken out 1.8 billion people. Depopulate virtually two, three continents at that point in time, just to give you some perspective. This is just one horse, and this is only the fourth seal. We're not even in the rest of it yet. So the sequence here is, they were given the authority to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. War produces famine. Famine produces people weakened with hunger who are more susceptible to pestilence. Pestilence is another word for plague. It's another word for disease, especially communicable diseases. So when you talk about pestilence or the plague in Scripture, they're always talking about communicable diseases, things that can spread, things that can infect. 
just to give you some perspective. 1918 to 1919, we had a tragedy of global proportions on the planet. We had 20 million people die from influenza. There were only 8.5 million only. That's a very strong understatement. There were 8.5 million soldiers who died in the combined battles of World War I. And World War I was one of the most brutal slaughterhouses of any war we've ever fought. The Battle of the Somme, we had 500 million people die in three months. Right? Now that's a lot of death, a huge amount of death. And influenza is just one little plague. Less than two years, 20 million people died from that. This is global pestilence. So not all of these people are going to be murdered by war. Not all of them are going to die of starvation, but a significant chunk are going to die from the pestilence that occurs from the plague, from the disease at that point in time. The deadliest animal on planet Earth today is the mosquito, by far. The second deadliest mammal is the rat. They both carry a large amount of diseases. Rats carry over 35 of them, which he was responsible for transmitting the Black Death, by the way, and they're everywhere, so they're very ubiquitous. When you get into a case of World War sanitation, very inadequate. Medical treatment, primitive at best. So disease has the ability to spread very, very rapidly. That's what we're talking about here. If you do manage to survive war, famine, and disease, you will be so weak you're going to be vulnerable to wild animal attacks. See, we look at this and we say, yeah, I mean, if you go to, you know, the Serengeti Plain and you try and pet a lion, I could see where you might become, you know, lunch. But, I mean, really? Well, if you've got millions and millions and millions of sickly people and you have wild animals whose natural prey has been destroyed by war, they're opportunists. They like protein. You will do just fine, right? <laughs> Your easy prey... You're already easy to kill, number one. And number two, if you're really weak and sickly and diseased, you're going to be real easy to kill. As a matter of fact, they may just do nothing but scavenge carcasses at that point in time. You look at this and you say, the whole planet is being destroyed. That's exactly right. God is destroying evil from his planet. He's going to repossess the planet, and it's toxic. This thing is kryptonite. Get the picture? It has to go. It's lethal. So... We're now going to leave the four horsemen on earth and we're going to enter a scene in heaven. This is almost an interlude, but it's a crucial, crucial interlude. Verse 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw, now John's back up in heaven, his vision is back up in heaven, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until a number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been slain, should be completed also. Here's the picture. The people have been killed because of their faithfulness to God's word. They have been martyred because they kept proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout this period of time and they refused to deny Jesus. So the fifth seal is widespread persecution of Christians. By the way, you see, there's no Christians on the planet. We're all in heaven. The church has been raptured. Evangelism is going on in great, great, great quantity all through the Revelation period. One of the things you must understand, God will never leave himself without a witness.
Next week, we're going to talk about the sealing of the 144,000 Jews, which become the evangelists during the period of time of the tribulation. And God, in his mercy, is bringing this judgment on the planet, and he's saying, repent, 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 come to me. I want a relationship with you. In the middle of the judgment, some people will. As a matter of fact, they'll come by the millions. And they'll be martyred by the millions during this period of time. There's going to be more people saved during this period of time than any other period of history. There's also going to be more martyrs at that point in time. What this seal should teach us is that God's people, that's you and me, are not immune from the sufferings of life, right? These people say, well, where's this health and wealth theology? I come to Jesus, I get killed. Whoa, what's that all about? That's normal. We live in the abnormal period of time where you're not persecuted actively for your faith, folks. America's a rather unique spot at that point in time. But when God judges planet Earth, even the saved are not immune from the trouble that comes from that. Now, Jesus, once again, predicted this 60 years before. Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and they will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. Mark 13, Mark 13, 12. And brother will deliver brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you say, how could that be? You don't have to imagine too much to see where that could be. When some people will do almost anything to save their lives, if you put them under enough stress, the church has been raptured during the tribulation period. People will come to Christ. Matter of fact, next week we're going to get it, or two weeks from now, Revelation 8. It tells us the number of the saved during the period of tribulation is so great that you cannot count them. It says they're around the throne, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language group. They're praising God. They've made their robes white through the blood of the Lamb at that point in time. And John says you can't even number them. That's how much evangelism is going to be going on during this period of history. But along with that explosion of evangelism is going to come an explosion of persecution. This is official, government-sanctioned persecution, prosecution, holocaust. I want you to think about this. The planet is literally falling apart. Who's to blame? Anytime there's a crisis, what's the first thing people want to do? We've got to find a scapegoat, right? When, when, when Rome burned, Nero didn't want to take responsibility. Who'd he blame? The Christians. When Germany had huge amounts of economic woes during the 20s and 30s, who did he blame? The Jews, exactly. What's the result? The same persecution, holocaust, mass death at that point in time. So someone's got to be responsible for all the war and all the famine and all the disease, and it must be those Christians. And by the way, their Messiah told them in Matthew 24 this was all going to happen. They got to be accountable. And so killing Christians during this period of time is going to be official policy. It's going to be legal policy. Do you know that the Jews were exterminated in Germany and it was absolutely legal to do that? I didn't say moral. It is evil, but it was, it was legal in the sense that they had laws on the books that allowed them to do it legally. They were wicked laws. We've got some here. We call it abortion, right? It's a legalized way through the state mandate. You can kill children, and it's legal. I didn't say it was moral. It's not moral, but it's legal. That's what's going to happen here on a vast, vast scale. Now, in heaven, these martyrs who've been killed for their faith are under the altar. And you say, well, there's obviously an altar in heaven, but why would they be under the altar? Well, 
In the tabernacle, remember there were two altars. You had an altar of burnt offering where you, where you sacrificed the offering as uh, an offering for sin to pay for your sin. That's not the case here because we only have one sacrifice in heaven and that's Jesus Christ the righteous and he still bears the scar tissue. There's no other sacrifices in heaven. So this would represent the second altar, which is the altar of incense. Outside the Holy of Holies, there was an altar of incense and there was very specific commands in Leviticus where the high priest or the priest on duty would offer incense that would waft an aroma to God. And we talked about last week, throughout Scripture, incense always represents the prayers of the saints. And we talked about last week that the 24 elders, remember, had bowls of incense. It's the accumulated prayers of the saints that God remembers at this point. So this incense represents the prayers of the saints, and these martyrs are petitioning God. And what are they saying? They're saying, God, I've, heard, I've read a number of commentaries that say this is imprecatory, and they're saying, God, avenge our lives. Actually, they're calling God what He is, holy and true. And they're petitioning God to destroy the evil that took their lives. You know what they're praying in essence? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. For God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, you know what's going to happen? Sin has got to be destroyed because there is no sin in heaven and there's a lot of it down here. So if you want God's kingdom to come on planet earth, it's going to have to be purified, right? He's doing that. That's part of the process at this point in time. So God is holy and true and he must destroy evil and they're saying, God, when are you going to do this. Please do it soon because we can't stand the evil. You shouldn't stand evil. You should not be tolerant of evil, especially in your own life. If you're tolerant of evil in your own life and intolerant of evil in other people's lives, we call you self-righteous and a hypocrite, right? The first place to be intolerant of evil is look in the mirror and say, Lord, help me be sick over my sin. That's the first place to start at that point. These martyrs, God tells them what? Rest. Wait, I have a predetermined time frame when I will take action and end this evil. As a matter of fact, here's something that I swallowed hard really, really heavily on. If you read the last part of this, it says, I have a predetermined number of martyrs yet to be killed. I already have the predetermined number. I know how many are going to be here. And they're not done yet which means I'm going to allow evil to triumph and kill more of my children and bring them to heaven as martyrs. And you look and you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought God was a good God. God is a good God. How many of you would rather stay here or go to heaven? Where are you ultimately better off? In heaven, of course, right? So we look and we go, well, anything that, that, that jostles my life down here is wicked. Ah, uh, no, 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 right? Here's the definition of a blessing. A blessing is anything that brings you closer to Jesus. Write it down because some of you are going to struggle with this this week. You're going to have circumstances. You're going to say, that Brad Hannock told me that a blessing is anything that brings me closer to Jesus. Right? Is that not true? I'm telling you, the way we get closer to Jesus is how he blesses us, usually with things that force us closer. And they're usually not fun. They're usually painful. Right? These people got in the presence of Jesus, but they were martyred for their faith. And their reward's great in heaven at that point. So we need to look at this from an eternal perspective. Psalm 139 says, God's got our days numbered, the day of our birth and the day of our death. 
Okay, so we have the righteous in heaven. Now he's going to break the sixth seal, verse 12. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was, I want you to underline this, get your pen out, a great earthquake. Number two, the sun became black, a sackcloth made of hair. Number three, the whole mood became like blood. Number four, the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And number six, the sky was split apart like a scroll. Number seven, every island and mountain was moved out of its place. Actually, there are six of them. So here's what's unique. The first five seals, peace, war, famine, pestilence, uh, and martyrs in heaven all have some degree of human involvement. There's human agency involved in all of these judgments. The sixth seal, God is acting independently of humankind. He is taking charge himself without any human interaction at all. And you can see the labor pains that Jesus talked about when the sixth seal breaks, the labor pains really increase in frequency and intensity. The judgments of God are increasing. The gospel is being preached. Millions are coming to Christ. Millions are being martyred. And now God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And Jesus predicted all of this before. Matthew 24, verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. One of the things that should give you great comfort is none of this takes God by surprise, right? All of it's in the plan. And Jesus told 60 days, 60 years before this period of time, before he ascended, he said, disciples, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Get ready, right? Get ready. So we have a six-part description of this judgment. Number one, there's going to be a great earthquake. This literally means a great shaking, a seismos, not just of the earth, but also of the universe itself. This is the shaking of the universe, the cosmos. Haggai 2.6, for those who want to cross-reference, Haggai 2.6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations. Right? Mankind has always counted on a predictable, stable universe, right? Most of us get out of bed, we put our foot down on the floor, hoping the law of gravity still works. Be interesting if you got out of bed and your foot went up and not down. That would be kind of interesting, right? So we count on a stable, predictable universe where the laws of the universe always work. Man's theory of evolution tells him that everything always continues just like it always has in the past. Not... There's going to come a day when the laws of the universe are going to change and God himself is going to shake the universe and people will then know that God is the Lord. An earthquake, Pastor talked a little bit about the earthquake in San Francisco. The one in 06 was far stronger, but an earthquake of this magnitude is going to level the vast majority of every man-made infrastructure on the planet. Right? You are going to see cities fall down, roads, dams, collapse building, every power line, water line, gas line, the vast majority of them are going to break. When you shake the planet, this is going to be an earthquake like we've never seen before. I don't know what the Richter scale will be, but it's going to be off the charts. And what do we get in coastal areas when you see a major earthquake? Massive tsunamis. Massive tsunamis. I have no idea how large, but... You could reroute rivers, you could, it's obviously going to break dams, floodplains, croplands. It's going to be the largest earthquake in the history of the world. Number two, the sun will become black as sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is made out of goat's hair, generally black goat's hair. It's very dark. Remember, black's the color of mourning. 
I don't know how much you know about geology, but the, the Earth's crust is covered by tectonic plates. They literally, continents ride on these tectonic plates, and these tectonic plates really rest on the mantle. The Earth's crust is between 4 and 25 miles, 6, very, very thin. And it floats on these tectonic plates, and if you've ever seen the Pacific Rim of Fire, you know that there's plates that cross, and when those plates come in contact with each other, the pressure builds, and that's where you get earthquakes. That's why San Francisco's had two of them at that point in time. When God shakes the heavens and the earth, these continental tectonic plates are going to move big time, and they're going to move simultaneously. We don't just see one. We're going to see a lot of movement at that point in time. When you get a massive earthquake, what do you normally also get? Volcanic. volcanic massive volcanic activity. You get volcanic eruptions, which spew rock, ash, uh, gas into the atmosphere. When you get enough atmospheric cover, you block sunlight. Just to give you a historical example. Largest, largest recorded volcano on record occurred in Indonesia in April 1815, Mount Tambora. Mount Tambora blew up in April of 1815. It lofted so much dust, ash, and debris into the atmosphere that 1860 was known around the world as the year without a summer. You literally had snow and frost in New England in June and July. So the, the mean temperature only went down about two degrees, but the problem is nobody could grow any crops. You had frost, right? You had snow. So you had massive food shortages in 1816, 17, 18. It took three years, right? One volcano, just one. We're going to have orders of magnitude more volcanoes because if the earthquake is going to pull these tectonic plates apart and the pressurized magma underneath is going to come shooting out at that point in time. So we're going to have major weather changes, major climate changes, major food supply changes. And it says, number three, the whole moon became like blood. Now when he says like, remember he's talking about a figure of speech, probably due to an eclipse. If the sun's blocked with dust and haze and the moon can't reflect sunlight that's blocked by volcanic ash, how many of you have seen a, um, a reddish sunset? One of the things that when Mount Tambora blew up, there was for years and years and years, there was these huge red sunsets because the dust in the air refracted the light that was coming to Earth. I don't know if that's what he's talking about here. It says like blood, that's kind of the color of red. My assumption would be you could see some of that because a, a huge reddish sunset because of the amount of dust that came up from the volcanic acti activity that was triggered by the earthquakes. Verse 4, or the fourth one, it says, The stars of the sky fell to the earth. The Greek word for star is, is astetos, where we get asteroid, where we get meteor. Probably refers to a very dense asteroid or meteor shower on an ongoing basis. So think of a, a very dense hailstorm of rocks falling from the sky. That can do you in, but I want you to understand that most meteors are very, very small, but occasionally you'll get large enough ones to create their own earthquake. In 1908, in Tuscaga, Siberia, Siberia, a cometary fragment thought to be about 20 meters or 30 meters in diameter. I want you to think of a ball of ice, that's what comets are made out of, about 100 foot across. 100 foot diameter ball of ice and dust fragments. That's what comets. Meteors are far more deadly than comets, by the way, okay? In, 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 in 1908, this comet exploded in the atmosphere just above the Earth. It flattened 850 square miles of forest. And we've got pictures. I mean, you can look up Tuskegee fragment, comet 1908, Siberia, you'll see the devastation literally laid out 
flat 850 square miles of forest. Just to give you a perspective, New York City has a land area of 300 miles, 300 square miles. Houston, about 599. LA is actually less than 300 square miles. Actually, LA is a little about 452 square miles. So one of these things, if it blows over a city, it's over. It's over. Okay? When Chicken Little says the sky is falling, maybe it's time for a prayer meeting, right? So, number five, the sky was split apart like a scroll. I've never seen a dried out scroll, but if it, if, if it gets dried out enough, they can break in half in, instantly. I think what John is probably trying to describe here is massive meteorological disturbances. I guess the closest word picture I can come to this is think of multiple hurricanes occurring at the same time. And hurricanes of a magnitude of which that we have not seen yet. So you've got a huge amount of disturbance going on. What's really happening here is the universe is literally coming apart under God's judgment. When he says, I'm going to shake the universe, he's literally talking about that. He says, the earthquakes are going to be so vast, number six, that every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So the entire geography of planet Earth is going to be altered. Your GPS won't work. Your map will be not functional. The whole crust of the planet is going to move like the ocean waves today. You know, there's an old song, This is My Father's World. So he can do with it exactly as he chooses. You know what he's doing with it here? He's disposing of it. This is a disposable planet. This is not a permanent planet. Yes? You know when this planet became disposable? In the Garden of Eden. Sin made a disposable place because God is holy and he cannot live with sin. He's not going to do it forever. He's going to deal with it. John MacArthur said this planet was made disposable by sin and the cosmos that God created out of chaos is going back to chaos. And you look at this and you say the whole place is falling apart. Yeah, God's disposing of it. He's taking it apart. He's dismantling it. You know why? So we can create a new one. A new heavens and a new earth. That's what's coming. That's our home. This is not our home. We know that. So don't get too attached to this place because it's going to fall apart. He's going to do it. Now, we finally get to some human reaction. When you look at verse 15, you go, we see God's doing this and God's doing that. And now, how do humans on the planet respond to this degree of devastation that God's imposing on the planet? Verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man did what? Hid themselves. It doesn't say they showed up on CNN and told everybody it was going to be okay. It says they all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. Underline this, and from the wrath of the lion. Is that what it says? It says the wrath of the lamb. You don't think a lamb being wrathful would be any big deal. This is a pet lamb, right? Well, this lamb is, as we talked about the last two weeks, a very big deal. For the great day of their wrath has come, and underline this question, who is able to stand? So this is the first time it says that humanity figures out that God himself is behind these catastrophes. Do you know if we get a famine, how many people say oh, it must be the hand of God? If we get an earthquake, how many people in our culture today say it must be the hand of God? There's a drought. John's been encouraging us to pray for months and months and months. How many people say this drought is the hand of God? 
Nobody. We attribute it to chance. We attribute it to something other than Almighty God. And these people do exactly the same thing over and over and over again. But when the sixth seal gets broken, they finally figure out that there is a God and he is behind what's going on. And they are terrified. They're terrified. By the way, this list includes everyone. Kings, great men, commanders, rich, strong, slave, and free. It appears that the evil of slavery is still going to be with us during this time because they talk about having slaves. This, this tells you it's wicked. This is a wicked era. A wicked era. Everyone is affected. Everyone is terrified. And no one escapes. And you know what these people do? They do what you and I did before Jesus Christ ran us down. You know what we do? We went and hid. Who are the first hiders in the Bible? Adam and Eve, they sinned, and what do they say? Let's put some fig leaves on. You ever tried to run around in fig leaves? Not too good. Doesn't get the job done, right? Yeah, die. TMI. I don't want to know, right? Okay. Just like Adam and Eve, they would rather run away in fear than run to God in faith. Throughout this entire period of tribulation, the gospel is being proclaimed. We're going to talk about that exclusively next week in verse chapter 7. The gospel is being preached. The opportunity to come to Jesus is proclaimed over and over and over and over again throughout the entire book of Revelation. So the gospel always has a witness. At the same time, God is shaking the planet. He's saying, come to me. Millions do. These are the ones that don't. These are the ones that say, I'd rather die under a rock fall than face the wrath of the Lamb. So if you die under a rock fall, what happens then? You face the wrath of the Lamb. Yeah. It's just a question of when. That tells you how deceived these people are. They refuse to repent. They would rather die. So John asks the question. In the day of God's wrath, what's the question? Who can stand? Now you know the answer to that. Here's the principle. Who can stand? Only those forgiven by the Lamb. Only those forgiven by the Lamb. When you look at this, and this is just the beginning. We haven't even got to the trumpet judgments or the seal judgments, or the bowl judgments we're going to get to, or the thunder judgments which occur throughout this at this point. So we've got a number of months to go yet at this point in time. But in reference to this, understand one of the reasons God brings judgments on with increasing intensity. He's saying, come to me. Come to me, right? Have you ever told your child, if you disobey, this is what will happen. If you keep disobeying, this is what will happen, right? And if you keep disobeying, this is what will happen. In other words, the punishment gets ratcheted up, right? This is called responsible parenting because we want our children to change and come back in conformity with who we are and what the right thing to do. God is the same way as a father. He's bringing the judgment to the planet. He's told his family, his church, through the, the prophecy of Jesus Christ, this is going to happen. Get ready for it at that point. But throughout all the judgment, you see God's mercy in bringing the gospel over and over and over again, giving people opportunity. Okay, let's review. Here's the key idea. Either you yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, or you will face the wrath of God. There's no alternative. God has three main purposes for the Great Tribulation. To make an end of wickedness, to bring about worldwide revival, and to break the stubborn will of the nation Israel so he can be their king. God's kingdom is being born and God's judgments are its labor pains. And those of you in this room who know Jesus, you absolutely will stand because you are forgiven by the Lamb. 
Okay, next week, read ahead. Chapter 7, we're going to talk about worldwide evangelism and how God accomplishes that through the 144,000. Be in much in prayer. There are many, many people you know who are lost and need to be found. Amen? Amen. Okay, I love you. See you next week.